Welcome to this week's episode of Graveyard Coffee Talk. We are your hosts, Amanda and Corinne. And uh, still in person, recording, what, like two minutes after we wrapped recording of our previous episode? Yeah, a little bit longer than that. I had to wait for Patrick to finish eating his lunch. That's true. He's such a good kitty cat. He's getting a tummy. Good. That cat needs to put on weight. I know. He's on He's on a medical diet now. Oh. It's really expensive. Hashtag he's worth it. He is worth it. He's just stupid as shit, but we love him. Anyway. So since we're recording right on the heels, um, I am still drinking my Americano with cream from Heine Brothers. And I am drinking a brownie batter latte with an extra shot of espresso because I make good choices. Oh, yeah. Good, good choices. Great choices. All right, so what is our card draw from your wonderfully, um, respectfully shuffled <laughs> Wild Unknown? Whoops. Um, <laughs> it is <laughs> the, I know, I know numbers. That's a four of wands, which is a symbol of completion and celebration. Your labors have been steady and strong and the harvest will be plentiful. And I'm going to be talking about harvests today. That's really, um scarily accurate for our Mm -hmm. topic today which is food folklore yes which so i started off really excited about this and then i didn't know where to go with it right and then got really scared and then avoided doing any research on the topic for a couple of weeks and then i as we discussed um in the previous episode, went to my local library. Yay! And not even thinking about doing anything related to podcast research, because occasionally I do just read for fun. That sounds fake. Um, I checked out the Best American Food Writing Anthology 2019. Okay. Which was edited by Samin Nosrat. Okay. And I've been slowly working my way through, and the essays inside got me to start thinking about food as a reflection of culture, rather than trying to find any individual food-related folklore stories. Okay. Um, so, my research here, I referenced some of it throughout my notes, but the Wikipedia article for Foodways an article on foodandculture.org about exploring cultural differences through the lens of food. Um, Two articles by Lucy M. Long, which I will touch on later. And I'll say this next one last because it's a surprise. Okay. (laughs) So I know what I found out for the beginning of this is kind of like, 101 level anthropology or sociology stuff, but I didn't have the vocabulary for this idea before my research, and maybe some listeners are also going to learn this for the first time today. Okay. So that's cool. Can't know what you don't know before you find out. Correct. So first, I want to quickly define a new word I learned uh, that, like, it's 
hitting on something in my brain. I feel like we maybe referenced this in a previous episode and my brain said, no, that's not important and just dumped it. Okay. Uh, Which is great. Long-term memory, A+. plus. Uh, But that word is foodways. F-O-O-D-W-A-Y-S. I have heard this word before and I cannot for the life of me tell you the context exactly like it is it's it's just gnawing there but the like okay definition please and thank you yes so per the wikipedia article uh, because that's always my jumping off point foodways are quote the cultural social and economic practices relating to the production and consumption of food okay the term is often used to discuss the intersection of food and culture traditions and history okay um because Food is culture. Food is political. Yes. Everything's connected. Yes. So with that in mind, uh, I found two articles by Lucy M. Long, as I mentioned before, uh, titled Green Bean Casserole, Commercial Foods as Regional Tradition, and Green Bean Casserole and Midwestern Identity, a Regional Foodways Aesthetic and Ethos. Interesting. I do love me a green bean casserole. I loved these. I have never thought about convenience foods, or I guess not convenience foods, but like prepackaged foods Mm -hmm. in this way before. And I got very excited Okay, as I was reading. So these essays discuss the logic behind the tradition of the green bean casserole at the Thanksgiving table, specifically through the lens of cultural relativism. So judging a practice by the function and meaning given to it by the culture it's a part of, not judging based on the morals and values of your own culture. Okay. So these essays specifically examined why the Midwest gravitates towards casseroles and things like a green bean casserole, which is just cans of things dumped in a pan and baked. And what I loved about this, uh, and, you know, in, in contrast between, you know, Midwestern gravitation towards industrial food products and ease of cooking versus, say, American Southern traditions that prioritize things being made from scratch. Yes. So when you think about the Midwest, you know, sure, once the swampy land in areas like Northwest Ohio were drained in the 1800s, the resulting available land was rich and fertile. Yes. It was. But the Midwest is home to some truly gnarly weather. Oh, yeah. So think cold, cold winters, hot, hot summers, yes. and enough tornadoes to give the name Tornado Alley to a section of the Midwest. Uh-huh. So Lucy M. Long posits that this leads to a cultural view of nature as something to be tamed and controlled, something dangerous rather than something that we are a part of and can work with. Okay. Enter canned foods. Okay. And convenience foods. Not only are these the perfect example of, you know, we control and contain the nature around us for our own use. Woohoo! Go humanity. It also plays on the Calvinist values of the dominant settler culture. Okay. In the area, you had a lot of German immigrants Mm -hmm. uh, who first started settling the area when it became incorporated into the U.S. I mean, think about the German festivals in Cincinnati where Marion lives. Exactly. Marion being my sister for people who who don't know my family at all. It's fine. But consistent, easy foods that maintain a flavor Mm -hmm. across iterations, 
that keep in the pantry through long winters. Yeah. These things guarantee that food is going to be eaten rather than wasted. Yes. And there are more details and examples in these two articles. Highly recommend reading them if you're at all interested in learning more. Uh, it's just one of those topics that I'm I'm so happy I found it and learned more about it because I don't think that I ever would have made the connection between canned foods and a cultural identity. Yeah. You know, I, I definitely, I mean, I grew up eating a lot of canned foods because yeah. A, it's what you can get at food pantries. B, it keeps, mm-hmm. it's cheap. It is a way to make sure that your kids are getting fruits and vegetables yeah. when buying fresh produce and risking that going moldy in the fridge is just financially unviable. Yeah, Even as like solidly middle class, you know, Hunter and I depend on frozen and canned veggies because I will pay that ADHD tax and there's these fruits and veggies that I bought and I'm like, I am definitely going to eat these are gently rotting in the back of my fridge and gaining their own sentience. And then I have to dispatch them. It's very sad. Yes. But I don't think that I would have made that connection between canned foods and cultural views on the other and cultural identity. And it's just this whole new rabbit hole that when I have time, I want to kind of dive more into and really sink my teeth into. Absolutely. I think you should. But that's what I have. (laughs) Um, Yeah. From that perspective for right now, I want to do more. I'm going to continue reading the anthology I checked out. Um, Currently, I'm reading an essay that I should have written down the title of, um, but it's an examination of one of the big names in industrial farming in California and how those practices and shady money dealings are contributing to the crisis of treatment of migrant workers and drought. And I, I just love it. It, I've never read uh, an anthology of food writing before. Uh, picked this up and I loved the foreword where she looked at the the long list mm-hmm. of essays to be considered and really went out of her way to pull things that were more political. Okay. Um, and that centered marginalized voices. Oh, I love that. And so I'm just... That's I'm cool. loving it so far. I'm a giant nerd. It's fine. You're all listening to a folklore podcast. You're a nerd too. <laughs> <laughs> or at least you're friends with us, which means that you knew we were nerds already. Eh, you're friends with us. You are. It is highly likely. <laughs> you are also a nerd. I'm just saying. I know who I'm friends with. Oof. Um, it's a good thing. Um, and then, of course, being that I'm me. I had to find something a little on the creepier side. Why? Because I didn't last episode and I wanted to. (laughs) So to end my food and folklore segment, I want to talk about bourbon distillery ghost sightings. I would like my alcohol to not have ghosts. I love when my spirits have spirits. God damn it. I was going to say the same. (laughs) Almost the same thing. I'm like saying my spirits don't need spirits. Damn it, we have been friends for way too long. (laughs) It's true. Uh, But specifically, I want to talk about the reported ghost sightings at Buffalo Trace Distillery here in Kentucky, just outside of Frankfurt. I love Buffalo Trace. And 
this is an article by Liz Carey. I have a story about Buffalo Trace that I cannot tell you while we're recording because I will get someone in trouble. Amazing. So when when we're not recording, I will tell you these things. You also have to tell me. Yeah, I know. I know. Yes. Anywho, uh, but this is from roadtrippers.com. Okay. Uh, Scrolling back down in my notes. So Buffalo Trace was founded in 1792 Mm -hmm. and claims to be the oldest continuously operating distillery in the United States. I did not do any additional research to verify or disprove that claim. That's... Probably not entirely inaccurate because several distilleries in Kentucky during the Prohibition era got special dispensation to make medicinal alcohol. I bring that up. Yes. Um, But no, I I just, I don't know if somewhere in other parts of the country we're distilling whiskey or gin or whatever. Yeah. Brandy sooner. And Colonel Albert B. Blanton. (laughs) Hey, hey, Blanton's is good bourbon. It's so good. Uh, was president of Buffalo Trace during Prohibition and kept the distillery in business by doing his best to corner the market on medicinal bourbon production. Yes. Uh, Because, again, as we were saying, during Prohibition, you could get a prescription for bourbon from your physician. I love that. I wish they would do that. (laughs) Apparently, um, Winston Churchill got a prescription for medicinal bourbon when he visited the United States Good man. on a diplomatic mich- uh, yeah. trip. Love that. Earlier in his career. Um, and if you believe several staff members and visitors, Colonel Blanton never left. Cool, cool, cool. This is not a story I got on my tour. <laughs> so visitors and staff have reported hearing mumbled voices and sounds of people moving and milling about concentrated in the area where Blanton's office was located. Okay. And when the show Ghost Hunters came to film, they claimed to identify the ghostly presences as Blanton and several of his former employees. Interesting. Buffalo Trace tour guide Lindsay Brewer recounted a tour she gave where she encountered something. Okay. She was leading a tour group of about 30 people in the Rick House. And for people who don't grow up in bourbon capital of the world and don't go, hmm, I've got a lazy weekend. Let's go on a distillery tour. (laughs) And you don't know what a Rick House is. Uh, It is where the barrels and barrels and barrels are kept because that the temperature and I'm going to butcher this explanation Mm -hmm. Please stop me if I embarrass myself. I got you, boo. Um, But temperature is a big factor in bourbon production. So you take your distilled product, you put it in your white oak barrel. You're charred. Charred. It's like, bitch, it is a charred oak barrel. You're charred. And it cannot have been used for anything else. I'm sorry. My father is a huge bourbon aficionado. And if I didn't know this shit, my dad would murder me. It's true. A... This barrel can only have ever been used for this batch of bourbon. Yes. It cannot be used for future batches. Um, that's why you get, you know, a lot of breweries using, making bourbon barrel beer because. Yeah. Or bourbon barrel wines. They'll sell the barrels. I know um, there are a few Scotch manufacturers who buy used bourbon barrels mm-hmm. because the barrels are good for other uses. It's just not bourbon. Yeah. If they have been used for anything else. So you've got your charred <laughs> white oak, white oak barrel. 
your distilled spirit goes in. You're going to age it. To get that oak flavor, what happens is, this is a food podcast. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Have fun. Uh, It's by two women from Kentucky. Bourbon's going to happen. Um, the liquid goes in and out of the oak barrel and it's that expansion and contraction of the wood in summer heat and winter cold that really does the flavor does the flavor that's a good way to put it because i don't have the words for it i don't either but i've been on a lot of distillery tours you and me both but then they give me bourbon at the end you've met my parents That's you true. know my family. That's true. We owned a distillery pre-prohibition. That is true. Um, so anyway, again, yeah. Expansion, blah, blah, blah. That's a rickhouse. Yes. Uh, it is, you know, it's protected from the elements and that you're not going to get rainwater or snow inside, but it's not, there's no central air. There's none. Uh, actually, the higher up it goes, the hotter it gets, which is actually why they rotate the barrels mm-hmm. throughout the year and over their time. Uh, because it has to be aged for a minimum of seven years, I believe, to be considered bourbon. No. As soon as it touches the white oak, it can technically be considered bourbon. Okay. I th- to be Kentucky straight bourbon, I think. To be Kentucky straight, I believe it's two years. Okay. I'd, I'd have to check because I know there's uh, And then aging. four years is what a lot of distilleries do because it's considered the standard. Yeah. And then you go longer and those are the more expensive bottles. Which is really interesting because so much of it is lost to evaporation. Mm-hmm. That I they the showed us share. or the devil's cut. Because some of it does get absorbed into the wood. Yep. Oh, guys. We're real southern. <laughs> go on a distillery tour. Look at the gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous pieces of arts that are Vendome. Um stills yeah oh my gosh just it's amazing i i think it's a great way to spend like a beautiful spring in weekend and then before we get back to the ghost uh something else that i learned is the limestone water is probably not what actually makes kentucky bourbon taste like kentucky bourbon interesting it's the yeast in our air which is why open fermentation interesting It's thought that if you took the same recipe for a Kentucky bourbon and made it somewhere else, you would get a different, a slightly different flavor profile because the wild yeasts are different. That makes a lot of sense. So the more you know, again, this is a food podcast. Back to the ghosts. (laughs) (laughs) Anywho, uh, Lindsay Brewer, Buffalo Trace Tour Guide. Yes was leading a tour group of about 30 people in the rickhouse and discussing the reported ghost sightings when she heard a voice from behind her say the word rye. No one else was behind her. She and the tour group were the only people in the rickhouse. Okay. And to make it even creepier, the members of the group agreed that they heard it too. Mmm, hate that for them. Um, so like, we're gonna go on a tour, right? Uh, yes, because <laughs> Frankfurt's not a bad drive. It's also, if we can time it to when they've got some E.H. Taylor, I'm up for being able to buy another bottle. Yes. Because you can get it. So, fun fact, I people. I just hit the mic. I'm so sorry. It's all good. I hit the mic all the time. Fun fact for uh, people who are touring Kentucky, 
if you buy bourbon from the distillery, it tends to be at a steep discount versus what you will get at liquor stores. However, there are very, very, very strict regulations on how much you can purchase at any one time because they do not want to flood the market. Right. Um, gosh, if you're ever in Louisville, go to Peerless. Have you been? I've not been to Peerless yet. Okay. So their tour is wonderful. Their history is great. Their bourbon is so good. Okay. They do. So just their quote unquote normal average product. It is not an average bourbon. It is delicious. And their rye may be my favorite rye. I do love a good rye. Ever had in my life. Um, But the, is it a master distiller? Is that the name? Yes. Master distiller. Goes through and, you know, each barrel is tasted. Mm -hmm. And when a barrel comes up that has its own unique flavor profile on its own before it's blended together, Mm -hmm. they will bottle that barrel and let you know what the particular flavor profile is. And once it's gone, it's gone. Yep. I love a good single barrel. they, They had one that had this slight smokiness. It was almost like... A scotch that had interesting the the nice caramelly mm-hmm. notes that you get in a good bourbon. I think we still have a little bit of it at home because I have been savoring that so slowly because it is just perfection. Anywho, everyone go get bourbon or yep. don't. I can't tell you what to do with your life. And since we're discussing food and folklore, there are two books that I'm super excited about that I want to mention here so that everyone can buy them so that, like, we can all talk about them on social media as, like, a Graveyard Gals book club. So the first is A Feast of Folklore by Ben Gazzer. Mm -hmm. And the second is A Gothic Cookbook by Ella uh, Buchan and Alessandra Pino with illustrations by Lee Henry. They've both been fully funded on Unbound. I am so ready to read both of them. Mm. Um, the Feast of Folklore is an examination of food ways, essentially, I guess. Food ways and folklore stories surrounding food. Um, and it's done by someone who actually knows what he's talking about. And then a Gothic cookbook, uh, from what I understand, is an examination of food in Gothic literature. Oh, okay with recipes inspired by foods mentioned in famous classics. Oh. Um, so again, super excited. I've got them linked in my notes. Nice. Everyone should buy them. Let's talk about them on social media when they come out. Woohoo! I'm so excited. Anywho, your turn, Corinne. Okay, um, my apologies, because my section is actually honestly pretty short, but it's because I was writing a freaking dopamine high for actually <laughs> finding any of this. Okay. So uh, I had no idea where to start with food folklore. Uh, because while I do recognize the role of food in folk culture, it's really never been my thing, which is weird because I do enjoy cooking. I love eating foods from other cultures and learning about those foods and learning about the cultures around those foods. But my brain was like, food, folklore, qua, what do? (laughs) But about a week ago, give or take, I saw a Tumblr post referencing bread magic in Hungarian folklore. Okay. And I, it, like, this is just this beautiful, lyrical, evocative post. And I was like, I have to know, is this a real thing? Like, you know, it, it's Tumblr, so while there's a lot of really great information out there, you have to take it with a grain of salt. Right. Because it could just be someone who's very good at writing taking the piss out of you. 
Yeah, there's there's no vetting. Yeah. So I started searching, and while I found a lot about folklore and folk traditions surrounding bread, I could not find anything regarding Hungarian bread magic. So, like, I was literally, like, I put a bunch of sources together. I was getting ready to sit down and start synthesizing my notes. And I thought to myself, I'm just going to search a little bit more. I'm going to try a couple of other keywords. And because I am so freaking stubborn, (laughs) I found the Tumblr post being discussed on a Reddit forum. And for reference, I do not use Reddit. I am never on Reddit. That is probably good for your sanity. Yeah. I just like, I I don't get it. Um, We use it for work because a lot of programmers use Reddit. And everything I have learned about Reddit has been against my will. Accurate. (laughs) So um, I found a discussion of this post. And there were actually some Hungarian members of that particular forum who were all like, you know, I don't know this. Like, this is not immediately familiar to me, but some of this phrasing is really ringing a bell. Um, so someone was like, oh, hey, I found it. And they linked to a Hungarian page, um, which was arcanum.com. Okay. And I, I ended up running it through Google Translate because I do not speak Hungarian. You don't? Not at all. Not a lick. Um, I feel betrayed. So the page references something called the bread's complaint and the devil in the bread. So basically, bread is complaining a ton about its lot in life. Because first, its seeds get buried in the ground. Okay. This is horrible. And then it finally sprouts and it is cruelly cut down. It is threshed. It is ground into flour. It is kneaded. And punched and so abused, and then it is thrown into a hot oven. And then people eat it. Because it's delicious. It is delicious. Sometimes, sometimes it gets baked twice when you toast it. <laughs> so the indignity of it all. In the bread's complaint, the bread is actually telling all of this to Jesus. Who's like, get good, buddy. <laughs> Sorry. Sometimes I words. <laughs> but when he's like, and sometimes they bake me twice, Jesus is like, whoa, whoa, slow your roll. That does sound like it sucks. And this is used as like an explanation of why some cultures don't toast their bread. Okay. Love that. Um, in other stories, it's the devil wants to take a poor person's soul or take their child or something. And the poor person decides that the bread is going to be its spokesman. And the bread is like, here's all the stuff that I've been through, and I'm still here. Unless and and until you can go through all of these things and come back, you can't pass me. Oh. Um, I like that. To quote the way the Tumblr post actually ended it, it is... Until you do all these things and survive, you have no power here. You're talking to the Goblin King. Pretty much. <laughs> so it's just, you know, absolute chef's kiss. And I love, like, the Tumblr post is all like, I, I want to do urban fantasy using this. You know, cause, you know, imagine a crappy store-bought muffin facing down the devil. <laughs> Trader Joe's frozen croissant. Yes. So, um, what was really cool, though, was while I'm going through this Reddit thread, they introduced me to the concept of 
a very similar story in English and Scottish folklore. Uh, John Barleycorn. That name is pinging so many bells in my head, but they're all broken, so I have no <laughs> idea what it is. Just a bunch of 404 errors. <laughs> so John Barleycorn is a very similar setup. It is used in folk music. And apparently there's a lot of pubs in England called John Bar- Barleycorn. Okay. Um, so it's basically the same thing, except instead of being about bread, it's about making booze. And um, all of the things that happens to barley as it becomes alcohol. And we thank you for your service, right? barley. Like, I just, I love it. Um, the Scottish poet Robert Burns has one of the better known variants of the poem. And there are many, many, many recordings of the ballad and its variants. Uh, let me see, because I want... I've got the Wikipedia page for John Barleycorn, and just some of the the Burns poetry is so good, and I'm going to read a little bit of it, because I can. Oh, yeah. Remember, this is a bourbon podcast. This is a literature podcast. This is folklore yes. junk food. Yes. So, there was three kings into the east... Three kings both great and high, and they has sworn a solemn oath John Barleycorn should die. They took a plow and plowed him down, put clods upon his head, and they has sworn a solemn oath John Barleycorn was dead. And they had taken his, his they had taken his very heart's blood and drank it round and round, and still the more and more they drank, their joy did more abound. <laughs> so I I love it. I love that. I also just really like Burns' poetry. A lot. Yeah. Also, I'm very glad that we both ended on a booze note. We are who we are. (laughs) Now I've got the Kesha song stuck in my head. No regrets. (laughs) No regrets. (laughs) Uh, That says more about me than it does about anything else, probably. It says that we're 30-something millennial women. Whose brains are made of rot. <laughs> yep. Amanda, my research is based on a fucking Tumblr post. Okay. So this is where I give a semi-impassioned defense, because I've only had one cup of coffee as we've recorded two episodes, so a pas- an impassioned defense, not going to happen, of going down research rabbit holes based on an overheard conversation yeah. based on an offhand note in a fiction book you're reading. I, I don't, I don't like the elitism and I make the same jokes about myself, Oh yeah, but I don't like the elitism of really a Tumblr post is what got you to research that. I was honestly more referencing like I am a 35 year old millennial on Tumblr. Well, where else are you going to be? Twitter? <laughs> yeah um i will i do since we've got a little bit of time because my notes were very very short indeed uh and i'll links will be in the bot and the thing I've, show notes on our website that's that's the bitch um one of the things i was just like well i'll just do bread folklore in general and i was reading a lot about the concept of bread and salt which is used across a variety of cultures as a show of hospitality. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, bread is very important. Salt, clearly, very important thing, very valuable thing. Um, the three things cited were always bread, salt, and heart, with heart being the hospitality. 
than with our powers combined. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're, we're a snack. <laughs> oh, gosh. Who listens to us? Oh, people on purpose. God love them. But anyway, it's seen in Middle Eastern culture. It's seen in Slavic cultures. It's seen in Jewish culture. It's seen in Nordic yes. culture. But in Russia, in particular, when the cosmonauts went out into space, they brought bread and salt. They would bring bread and salt to the ISS. I don't know why that is like making me tear up a little bit. I I like that humanity is bringing their folklore to the stars. The stars are such a, a part of our folklore. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I saw that and I was like, ooh, I know we are currently not on the best of terms with Russia right now. But yeah. like, regardless, people are people are people. And this is a bit of culture that is very good. And I I like I just saw that I was like, they took bread to the stars. I really am tearing up about that now. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I mean, fair play. You brought spooky shit, I bring I bring the, the crying. That is what we do. Yeah. We we've, we've established this. It's true. You scare the shit out of me, I make you cry. I didn't go that scary. This you actually time. didn't. Now, am I going to make you go on a distillery tour and ask the tour guide about every ghost encounter that they may or may not have had? Yes. Am I going to ask for more details than is reasonable? Also, yes. Also, yes. I'm also going to go a little bit on a soapbox here. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we're, we're talking about hauntings and people on Twitter may or may not have seen my story about what I thought was a haunting a few weeks ago. Yes. Where I thought I heard the piano playing down in the basement and saged the hell out of everything. Uh, it turns out there were, in fact, low levels of carbon monoxide in my basement and had been since I moved in. So this is your friendly reminder. Install carbon monoxide detectors. Test them. Make sure they work. Do not be like me and my husband. <laughs> And spend two years not realizing that our water heater was venting carbon monoxide into our basement. I feel like that explains so much about our first season. Because <laughs> we record down here. We do. Um, but yeah, that's my soapbox. Because like, hauntings, I do believe they exist. But 99.9% of them, probably some faulty wiring somewhere. Could be carbon monoxide. You should get that checked. Yes. Um, But this one was really fun. It was. Um, Yeah. Again, go get y'all some library cards. Go to your library. Just pick up something random in the nonfiction section that looks interesting to you. Do it. Tell us what you got. Show us pictures. Yes. Show us pictures of you at the library. Or of you using Libby if getting to the library just isn't feasible. Yeah. Or if you're not in the States, I don't know what your Libby equivalent is. And I'm very sorry. Yes. Anyway, that's it. Yeah, that that's all I got. Um, gonna go have a bunch of bourbon tonight. Hell yeah. Uh, so sweet dreams and caffeinated nightmares, everybody. Good night. Thank you for listening to Graveyard Coffee Talk. Our theme music is Pretty Little Dead Girls by Sean and McGuire. 
copyright 2006 and used with permission. Our cover art is by Kyle Welsh. If you want to keep the chat going, please visit our website at graveyardcoffeetalk.com for transcripts, episode notes, and more. Follow us on Instagram at graveyardcoffeetalkpod or on Twitter at talkgraveyard. Fishes out there on the hill. The fish is looking for.